I am recording one, two, three, four episodes with four different women this week. But before I rush them and move on with them, I want to go back to Roxanne McDonald. And, you know, she had a lot of feelings about getting as vulnerable as she was and about people judging her. But she has just a tremendous amount of experience in uh, substance use disorder, substance use disorder prevention, intervention, sober coaching, treatment. You know, we use the darkest parts of our lives to try to help somebody else. And the hardest thing to do is help families. And so we had this 30-minute discussion in the middle of our conversation about the difficult problem of you you want to intervene, you want to help, you want to keep this person from, you know, killing themselves in slow motion or by overdosing or whatever. And it's such a thorny issue of what to do and how to actually help and how not to perpetuate the thing and when someone can be helped and how. And we get into a lot of that and a lot of painful personal experiences. There is the mention of suicide, and I talk explicitly and about my friend Drew Harkey. I, I will say that his taking of his life, I think, was... Um, I don't know that I would call it a de- death of despair. I don't know that it it falls within the same category as a lot of... I, I don't think you can lump all these deaths in together. I think some of them are pure accidents. Some of them are just people not understanding how incredibly contaminated, toxic, and deadly the stuff that's just floating around at parties is these days. That is its own tragedy within the so-called deaths of despair. There are plenty of people dying today who do not suffer from substance use disorder. It's simply a massive contamination of an underground drug supply. So uh, this ain't your parents' party. And um, we talk very explicitly about that. So I think this has got to be beneficial to somebody. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. There are programs that cost next to nothing uh, for codependents, for family members. Um, there is Naranon. There is Al-Anon. There is Families Anonymous. There is there's the oldies, and then there's and you get you just got to find the ones that work for you. If they don't work for you, do not quit. Go to the ones that do work for you um, because the families need so much help and it breaks my heart. They're suffering in silence. Me and Roxanne, we, we, we talk about that in this week's, in this week's podcast. I believe anything can be healed with love. This is In Her Words a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In her words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. I'm Stuart Watson. Our 174th episode in 174 weeks, it does not mean there've been 174 women. Sometimes, like today, we take the time to double back. 
and give you bonus material in an extra episode. And that's the case with this week's guest, my friend, and somebody who has been through the ringer and is a living testimony of how to be a clean and sober woman, Roxanne McDonald. How do you tell families you got to let them go? <laughs> That's the hardest thing. It's you. I would refer to it as the illusion of control. But you and I both know there's no control. Um, you and I both know you cannot build a wall high enough. I could tell you stories of things I did that are just, they're just crazy. Tell me one. Just crazy. One? Oh, my God. I guess I'll say it. Why not? My... I feel like I can say my loved one's addiction because I feel like she would say that today. It took a long time for her to get there to be able to say that, but I believe that she would. So I have a loved one in active addiction and I am trying to manage and control and control their addiction. And <laughs> I would do things like I can remember I would take every telephone out of the house because this loved one would make phone call and have somebody pick them up and then they would be gone and they would be on a run for days at a time. And so I can remember taking all the telephones and packing. And I'm not going to sit there and say my house was huge, but I'm not, I'm going to tell you, I had to pack up a lot of phones and wrap up all the cords and fill up the back of my car just so I could leave the house to go to the grocery store. It was just pure insanity. And I remember one time, so there's one thing that I'll tell this story. This is not my shining moment, people. But I remember driving down Providence Road. If you lived in Charlotte any period of time, you'll know that Providence Road, the widening project was three and a half years. Three and a half years of bumper-to-bumper traffic. One day we're in the car and bumper-to-bumper traffic, and I don't know what she said, but I threw that damn car in park. I ran around that side of the car. I pulled her out of that car. I've got her down in a headlock. I can feel the headlight of my car burning my head. And I get this moment of clarity. I'm like, what in the hell is happening to me? I had become crazier than the person with the addiction in my life. I had become, I was so crazy. And the thing was, is because I had, at that point, I don't know how many years, I think almost eight years of recovery, I thought I was smarter than the average bear, and I was not smarter than the average bear, not by a long shot. I was crazy as hell, and I realized in that moment that hurt is, my loved one's disease had the ability to take me down. And I knew then that I was gonna have to fight to keep my seat and to keep my recovery. And, and I joined another fellowship that addresses and helps those that have a loved one that struggles with addiction and saved my life, absolutely saved my life and made my took my personal recovery to a whole new level because I had put the plug in the jug years ago, but I still have to play well with others. And so that's what that other program was for me, whether don't we still think the carrot and the stick that we can offer them enough money or cars or whatever on the one hand or 
threaten them enough on the other that we're going to be able to control it. Like with those two things, the combination of I'm going to beat hell out of you on the one hand, or I'm going to cut you off and throw you out in the cold, as opposed to, oh, but look at this yeah. studio filled with valuable prizes. If yeah. you, all you have to do is we'll get you a Maserati as long as you, yeah. you just put together this much time. Yeah. So I am an interventionist. That's my career. That's one of the things that I do. And yeah, I deal with that all the time. How do you teach them? <coughs> listen, I can intervene till the cows come home. But if you go back on this and also I can intervene if that person's not ready. That's a lot. There's a lot to unpack there. And the truth is that's my job. And families will come to you in all different phases. It might be they know there's a problem, but they're not willing to do anything. They're just looking for a magic bullet. And then I got to give them the bad news. There's no magic bullets. And I have coached, I coach families and I get them from what we call the pre-contemplative or the contemplative stage. And I've literally had to coach and work with families. I had one family, it was probably six, eight months before we did the intervention because I had to get the family to the point where they could stop creating a safe, comfortable place for their loved one to continue to use, drink and use. And you can make a comfortable place for somebody to stay in their addiction in a variety of ways. It can be financial support. It can be giving them a place to live. It can be co-signing their bullshit. Or we gotta pay for the car apartment, whatever. We gotta do that. I we gotta pay for the food. I could never imagine his electricity being turned off, Roxanne. I've heard it all, absolutely. So I work with the families until they can get to the place where they're able to create some healthy boundaries for themselves. They're not for others, they're for themselves. I tell people it's an if-then premise and it's for you because they're coming through it. So it's to remind you what you're gonna do when they do this. Okay. It's not a threat. And then it can't be a threat. I won't work with you. I can't be in an intervention and have a wild card. I have to know that we're, that you are making an investment in yourself. Yeah, no hyperbole. You drink again, I'm gonna kill you. Oh, you if know? you drink again, I'll take the kids and leave. That, don't, see, those are rules, those aren't boundaries. Those are harsh, those are rigid, those are punitive, and I don't work that way. I believe anything can be healed with love. My job as an interventionist is to be compassionate and kind, but I also need to be assertive. So when I work with families, sometimes I have to get them to the point of being able to do an intervention, but then I work with the families why their loved one is in treatment. So that loved one is coming home to a healthy environment because just like you said, if you take somebody, put them in treatment and then set them right back in their environment, the chances, if it's a dysfunctional environment, then the chances are that they're not gonna have a positive outcome. Let me say this, I've said, as a sponsor, okay, you don't, let's say you don't care about your wife of X number of years, 
do you want to be the asshole to those kids? Do you want those kids speaking to you? I've said that. Let's set the marriage aside and let's set whether you want to actually spend time with your kids aside. Let's just fast forward in this little imaginary thing to them graduating from high school or college or whatever. You want to be there? You want to walk your daughter down the aisle? Or do you want to be permanently persona non grata? I will absolutely say that to them because that's not a threat. That's just, you need to start imagining that mm -hmm. this is not going to be some fun bachelor's pad. It's going to be the lonely and isolated divorced dad that even if you get custody of them, they're not going to want to be with you. And I don't think that's a disservice to do that. I'm not their wife. I can't tell you what's going to happen. Maybe she'll stick with your ass yet again, but I don't think you can count on that. My experience is, is people that are in active addiction. Oh, okay. All people right. that are in active addiction, their disease will tell them, oh, it won't be like that. It'll be different, Stuart. My kids won't be like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Their disease will lie to them. I always say that sobriety delivered everything my addiction promised me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But addiction, addiction lies to you and that is tells that. you. I get the, I used to drink, so I would get, I could not get that deep of a sigh without putting that in down my gullet. Now I can get that by learning how to breathe. I can get that sitting on the deck with my wife, having a cup of coffee in the morning and watching the birds all around us. I get that feeling numerous times during the day. And I used to think it all, if there's no booze, I don't get to fully inhale or fully exhale. And people don't believe that. I'm like, how am I gonna relax? How am I gonna unwind? You don't know how much stress I'm under. How am I ever gonna get rid of the stress? This is, there's a reason they call Xanax anti-anxiety because that's what handles the anxiety. And Xanax is nothing more than alcohol in solid form. It's the exact same receptors. It's to go, and I'm like, you don't get it. I have anxiety off the charts. I have stress at my job. I have stress over this. I've got to have this. And you're saying, dude, that thing is killing you. And it is. And there's a way. Yeah, there is a way. There's a solution. There's a way out. But few of us wanted to hear it. Few of us believed it. I remember one time, you might, I should start a joke. You might be an alcoholic if. <laughs> You might be an alcoholic if your neighbor knocks on your door and brings you a book <laughs> for a fellowship and says, you might need this. And you're like, oh, no, I was just drunk, too drunk that night. I'm sorry, did I let the car alarm go off all night long because I was passed out and didn't hear it? Yeah, yeah, I had well-intentioned people tell I, me. I talked to a guy. He said, my wife told me if I drink again, she's going to take the kids, but I have to get out. I have to go get, and he said, my first thought was, oh, if I get my own apartment, then I can drink over there all the time. And I said, yeah. when people say that, people who are not alcoholics, they might say, I'm glad the bitch is gone, but rarely do they say, cool. I get to move from a three-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath house 
to a little apartment so I can drink. Yeah, the bitch is gone and the party's on. It's <laughs> exactly what my ex-husband said. <laughs> I was like, that's an extreme way to go just so you can drink, to be but, able to have to move out of your own home. But we will. Oh, of course. But we will. Of course. And our disease will justify it in a multiple of ways. They're better off without me. You know, a guy I mean, lived there's... in Myers Park. He was a trustafarian, gets the check for 20, 50 grand every month. You know, the trust fund babies, uh -huh. the trustafarians. And he's with the stripper in Hickory. Uh-huh. He's got the model family back in Myers Park. What? is good about moving to Hickory to an apartment with the stripper. What exactly? How is that a move up? Uh-huh. Show me how that is. It's happening now. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's there are crazy. people who do, do not understand this, but it's crazy. It you is amazing I... what sounds like a good idea at the time. Yeah. My disease will lie to me. Do you believe in the treatment industrial complex because there's a lot of some people clearly need long-term treatment and some people might just need to detox and some people can just start going to meetings or even to church i'm wrestling with this myself because i absolutely believe that treatment centers and long-term treatment is very helpful. It sets people up for success. But there's also a huge washout rate and there's a huge cost. So you're intervening to get them to go away somewhere. So talk to me about that. When is treatment just a big fucking waste of money? Well, that's pretty <laughs> loaded statement. <laughs> when is it a I, every situation is so different yes, and, it so is. New, and so unique. It's really hard. Actually, it is, I'm just going to, it's impossible to make a blanket statement about this. In my opinion, it is never a waste of time to get good, valuable education and counseling. I, there's not a circumstance in which I would find that to be a waste. I'll say that. Without getting all sciencey on you. You can. Go ahead. If we we're honest about it, in active addiction, if you did an MRI on somebody's brain, you would see that the frontal cortex is almost completely offline. So it would be you wouldn't hardly see it lit up anywhere. Almost no activity. So that means we're not making so the, plus minuses of my drinking. We're not making a rational analysis. We're not really. Okay, your words. I would say that this is where the executive function is. So this is my decision making. Right. This is where my, where my moral values come from. And most importantly, I don't know, they're all important. Silly saying. This is where my impulse control is. And that's why you see so much relapse in the beginning because I have no impulse control. So the brain takes up to two years to heal. What we know, you use the word long-term, what we know is that the longer someone can be in treatment, and by treatment we mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be a treatment center, but monitoring, oversight, accountability, I'll use those words. Intensive outpatient, urinalysis. Yeah, 
a number one treatment program in this country is the pilots program. And the reason why it's number one is twofold. One is because it's the accountability is five years. So it's that's five years. That's number one. So it's the length of oversight, accountability, monitoring. Number two for them is it was never treated as a moral failing. It was always treated as a safety issue. So there wasn't the stigma. There wasn't the shame. There wasn't any of those things. No one was led to feel that way. Tammy Bell and I had this conversation and she said, and it's also, if you're earning 200,000 plus flying one of the big jets, then you have, or if you're earning a 10th of that flying a teeny tiny crop duster, it's a matter of your identity that and your livelihood that they hold that ticket over your head. And the same can be true of nurses, truck drivers, pharmacists. You don't have to earn 250. You don't have to be a neurosurgeon to have them hold a ticket over your head. And that is a powerful motivator. And I know from a buddy of mine who worked in the medical system, he was actually a pharmacist, is that up to five years out, he could be at Disney World with the family and they could say, we want a urine sample. And he had, I think it was something like 30, 45 minutes, it might've been an hour to get to a treatment testing site or they would consider him in violation. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't go on vacation for up to five years. That's a very powerful motivator because you have something to shoot for You have people who are not treating it with shame. It's just a practical matter. Dude, this is just what you gotta do. And you you have accountability and unpredictability. You can't say, oh, this is good because I know they won't test me until at least X time. Yes. So I can get it out of my system. They could test you at any time. Yes. So long-term, so what we know is the longer someone can be in some level of care, right? Some, you might say aftercare. Actually, towards the end, probably all they do is test. The longer that someone has accountability or monitoring, the more likely they are to have a successful outcome. Then it drops down the jail system that has a drug and alcohol program. I think it steps down to, I don't wanna quote percentages, I think it's a 65%, around 60, 65% right but what that has is they've been plucked out of their environment right and i will argue till the cows come home regardless of what your feelings are about treatment there is something to be said for being plucked out of your people places and things put into an environment where you not only are getting all the therapeutic support but you have no choice but to focus on yourself If you're an outpatient, you're still going to the job, the people, the places, the things, and those can be a distraction. It can also be, (laughs) can also have very negative consequences. If you are, you mentioned dysfunctional families, that's a great example. It could be the neighborhood that you live in. It could be a variety of things. So there's something to be said for being taken out of your environment just until you're stabilized, right? You get stabilized get some, let's get down to some causes and conditions, figure out, because I've always said that alcohol was not my problem, it was my solution. So 
let's figure out why, let's do the problem and get some therapeutic support, get you stabilized before we then put you back you, into the wild. And you read what Gabor Mate, what Dr. Gabor Mate is writing now, one of the best respected people. His entire model is it's a maladaption to trauma, that alcohol is a maladaption to trauma. And so many treatment centers now have components in which they'll focus on the individualized trauma of this individual because the individual is going to be looking to see whatever they can numb out, disassociate, whatever word you want to use from having to feel that over again. It's not being processed. It's not being healed. It's just being numbed. Oh, in addiction, certainly. I think our understanding of trauma has come so far. Go back to my mother, right, who said, I didn't know that was abuse. And then today, as a grown woman, when I think of my childhood, the very first thought that comes to my mind is I get this pain in my stomach. I'm the kid walking up the driveway, and all I can hear is my dad yelling and screaming in my ear, this better be the last time. That is a trauma response. So we have a much greater and deeper understanding of trauma today. And I think as a result, we are able to treat and help people in a much better way than perhaps we've done in the past. But that's true of a lot of things. I wanna ask you about one thing. My position is also having seen friends who are right next to me die. Did you know Drew Harkey? Yes. Quite well. I adored Drew. And he had a close relationship with a great many people. Yes. So people like him. Is that there's a there's a blurry line between intentionally taking your own life and and not like caring whether you live or die. And in the world of addiction, it the world of addiction has ref, has been referred to as suicide in slow motion or a suicide on the installment plan. And I'm not talking about Drew here. That was a very different case. What I'm wondering is when it comes to the deaths of despair, intentionally killing yourself and accidentally dying as the result of constantly overusing opioids, etc., bit of a blurry line. They're both called deaths of despair. Are you asking me if I agree? Just what do you think? The first thing that came to my mind is I had that client yesterday. I have a young woman whose family sent her to me to recovery coach her. She had an accidental overdose she would tell you that no way she had everything going for her. no way would she have tried to kill herself but in a alcohol and drug stupor had taken too many drugs and you and i have more people in common than just him that's exactly what happened you are under the influence and you forget or you don't know and you just take more there's just no question that this is never ends. It's like Russian roulette, right? It's, it's just not going to end well. 
you and I would say jails, institutions, and death. It's just like, where do you want to get off? Like, where, where do you want the train to stop? My father, biological father, went to jail, state prison, federal prison, a hat trick, thank you very much, in Louisiana and in Georgia. He was committed, chose to be committed to detox at the largest mental institution in the country, in Milledgeville, Georgia. And on his death certificate at the age of 46, it said it's died as the result of acute alcoholism. So jails, institutions, death. I used to think that was scared straight kind of stuff until I read the paperwork. It is literally true. He literally went to jails, was committed to an institution, and drank himself to death. And I think thinking of this as a lethal public health problem is slowly starting to dawn on us. It's been slow in coming. Oh, yeah. And this is a long and big conversation. But the reality is this society has changed in so many ways. COVID changed in so many ways. I worked in a treatment center during COVID. We were essential workers. And I would go to a treatment center all day and then come home and isolate all night. Go back to the treatment center, come home and isolate all night. And I started crying one day. The tears just started coming. It's had a profound effect on us. One thing as an interventionist that I even I found surprising was this past holiday season, just four months, four short months ago, was the busiest I'd ever had. And that's three years post-COVID. And we would have thought, but the reality is just, it's the ongoing effects. And, the, and people are working remote now. They're able to hide it, or they were able to hide it for a period of time, but it's caught up to them and they can't anymore. I think it's a big conversation. Um, and the last piece to that, that we've not talked about is that mental health. Mental health, uh, you cannot be in this business without being touched by mental health. They're almost completely hand in hand now. I remember a time in my day, no one talked about anxiety. Now everybody has anxiety. Anxiety and depression. I remember a time when we didn't have that. It doesn't mean it didn't exist, but we certainly didn't talk about it. We didn't treat it. Well, I thought you were going to talk about the toxic culture, which has made that rampant and epidemic, which is certainly what Dr. Gabor Mate talks about. There's a toxicity in the culture. And Gen Z is now off at college, and I can't tell you the number of times I go to a specific meeting, and these guys, they're kids. This suicide, that suicide, high school, college, people at good schools, and they're just profoundly affected by all the disruption. And in that sense, I think substance use disorder is a subset of all this. And there's what they call comorbidity or co-occurring disorder with anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, straight up depression, all the others, people who they're treating, they're self-medicating. Absolutely. I did not take her whole day, but I got to tell you, I took an hour and a half, close to two hours, and Roxanne, I really appreciate it. This is a subject that's near and dear to my heart, and I, I went kind of long, but I appreciate you 
and I think your experience, strength, and hope is invaluable. So thank you so much. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone who has supported little old me, uh, whether it's in the form of manlistening.com, in her words, the podcast, or now voicelocket.com, telling your stories or helping you tell your stories. Thanks so very much. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much. <laughs>